This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Rory Fleming of Foglight Strategies, a strategic research and communications organization for progressive prosecutor candidates and criminal justice orgs. Thanks for coming on. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So could you tell us about how your organization got started? Yeah, for sure. So I um, got very interested in prosecutorial uh, discretion and um, misconduct issues as well when I was at Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project as a legal fellow for two years after law school. So I was there um, for, uh, for most of uh, 2016 and most of 2017. And uh, then I started uh, my own consulting firm to work on sort of the uh, political side of, of what I was l- looking into while I was there, which is, you know, different um, policies and practices of district attorneys, which are the elected uh, head prosecutors on the county level. Some places call them commonwealth attorneys or county attorney, state's attorney, but they're all, you know, the same thing in terms of what they do, which is, you know, um, whenever there's a crime that's committed or a potential crime that's committed, the police, you know, will investigate, potentially arrest somebody. Then it goes to the prosecutor's desk and they decide if they're going to charge, what they're going to charge the person with, and, uh, you know, things like how much uh, bail money they'll ask for, what the sentence uh, they want is, and often judges are pretty um, deferential to prosecutors on a lot of those types of items. So they have an extremely important role, and a lot of people have talked about, um, both academically and politically, how they are really the sorts of architects of mass incarceration, you know, or, or more like the, the foot soldiers, I guess, but they do have a lot of um, discretionary authority that uh, the legislature, you know, they create the laws and then the prosecutors have a lot of discretion on how they actually go about their job. How in the past have we seen them respond to and increase mass incarceration? What role exactly and what policies have prosecutors played in regards to mass incarceration? Yeah, so a couple of things. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, one, the most obvious way would be charging discretion. So um, it's pretty par for the course for prosecutors in the contemporary era to uh, essentially overcharge the facts, you know, uh, instead of being like, hey, okay, um, this... Uh, robbery or this burglary or this murder case happens, like, let's charge it at what the most obvious level is. What they tend to do is charge a a couple of notches in severity above that with the expectation that defense lawyers will whittle it down to what it actually is. But depending on how much um, uh, power and sway defense lawyers have in a particular community, then then people start getting convicted of those uh, really inflated charges. And, um, and most cases are actually settled by plea deals. So um, that's where the defense and the prosecutors come together and decide like what the disposition will be. 
Um, but it's definitely a very slanted relationship. Uh, like public defender funding is, is is very, very weak in a lot of places. Prosecutors get paid a lot more. People uh, often respect prosecutors a lot more. Juries listen to them much more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but going beyond that, they also have a tremendous sway in legislators because they, they lobby a lot. Um, so every, essentially every state in the, in the U.S. has a um, state district attorney or prosecutor association. And whenever there's any kind of even incremental reform, say decriminalize marijuana uh, or legalize marijuana, especially, you know, you'll have the prosecutors like the electeds march in or, you know, their um, their ambassador from the D.A. association, sometimes a lobbyist. And they'll just be like. You know, if you legalize marijuana, your kids' heads are going to explode or something. You know, it's just a lot of like fear-based um, strategic tactics because they they don't they don't really want to sacrifice any of their power. Essentially, is is really what it it tends to be and what it seems like to most people. Um, so those are the two main ways. And right now, we're seeing the importance of prosecutors really get some national attention given Kamala Harris's presidential candidacy. Can you speak on that? Definitely. Yeah. So that's that's a very um, interesting and important uh, thing that's going on right now. And, I, and you're right, it's giving a lot of exposure to the, the power and importance of district attorneys. Obviously, Kamala Harris was the San Francisco district attorney for uh, for two terms before she became California's attorney general. Um and and so it's it's an interesting kind of situation because back when Kamala Harris was the district attorney, that wasn't really when the watershed moments happened of using the uh, the district attorney elections as a sort of um, accelerant to criminal justice reform. It was still in this wave where you basically only had a couple of district attorneys really talking about reform, and that those those folks are. John Chisholm in Milwaukee County, uh, Wisconsin, Dan Satterberg in Seattle, um, and, you know, a couple of others in some smaller counties, but that was basically it. And then um, after Kamala left the DA seat, she was uh, replaced by George Gascon, who is, who is serving his second term out right now and then often to not um, run for re-election this time. But uh, I was actually working on his re-election campaign until he... Uh, decided to call it quits for various reasons. But um, George also became kind of one of these quote unquote early reformers. But the funny thing is, this has only been going on for like, you know, a decade or so, like at, at best, really. Um, and so I think it is a, there, there is some lack of fairness to go after Kamala with the standards of today to a degree. But then there's two kinds of sticking points on the other side. One um, and The Intercept just wrote up this piece about uh, this. So Kamala Harris unseated this man, uh, Terrence Hallahan, for the DA seat. And she actually ran against him as being um, more a bit more of a conservative Democrat, more, quote unquote, tough on crime. Hallahan was actually pretty progressive. But, um, you know, the narrative tends to be that there really weren't progressive prosecutors uh, back then. And so, I, you know, no one's really, like, paid attention to this Hallahan guy much out of, outside of San Francisco, but he was apparently doing a lot of uh, things on um, cracking down on police misconduct and realizing that uh, that prostitution or sex work is a public health problem. Don't 
throw people in jail for nonviolent like drug drug crimes, especially possession and use. Um, and and Kamala kind of uh, you know undid some of that, arguably. Uh, the other thing is that when she was California Attorney General, which is not exactly in the prosecutor purview, but it does have the impact of um, deciding whether or not to defend prosecutors who have been accused of misconduct on the appellate court level. And so she actually, uh, you know, she went to bat, for example, for the Orange County, California district attorney at the time, Tony Rakakis, who his misconduct was so heinously bad in, uh, well, in a lot of cases, but in particular, this one um, spree shooting case uh, um, the defendant, he shot eight people outside of a hair salon. And this is an easy death penalty case if if one is so inclined. Um, but that wasn't a good enough for Tony Rakakis, who was a, you know, like um, pretty conservative, quote unquote, tough on crime Republican. He actually they had this whole system in the county jail that he was um, working with the sheriff on to essentially unconstitutionally put uh, informants in people's cells to try to get them to confess to crimes without their lawyer present. And so Obama's uh, DOJ was actually investigating this, but obviously, you know, Trump's DOJ killed it. But um, this, uh, the, the misconduct was so bad that um, the death penalty was taken off the table. And so then um, the, it, the case went to the attorney general's office because of the misconduct and they wanted to seek the death penalty. And uh, Kamala was like, yeah, they should be able to. And the judge on appeal was like, no, you know, the misconduct was just so like, like tainting in this case that even though it's transferred to a different office, like it can't be on the table, like constitutionally, it's just not fair, basically, um, under the Constitution. Uh, And yeah, so Kamala Harris could have made the decision to not uh, essentially defend Rakakis's actions in court. But she basically decided that, um, at least in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of criminal justice reformers uh, who study prosecutors, that she decided the death penalty in the case was more important than prosecutorial misconduct uh, being something that people are held accountable for. And so that's it's it's in the weeds, obviously. You know, I've said a lot there, and I think that's part of the reason why. Um, Sometimes people online who are criticizing Kamala Harris's uh, criminal justice record will just get, um, you know, the equivalent of a virtual slap across the face um, when they try to argue these points because they're they're complicated. And if you're not a lawyer or you know somebody who works in this area all the time, you, you, it's kind of in the weeds and it's it's kind of confusing. Um, but but it does matter because prosecutorial misconduct is an issue um, that is much more widespread than people think about. Um, and it, it includes stuff like hiding evidence of potential innocence from the defense, uh, as well as discriminating against potential jurors by striking them from juries if they're uh, people of color, often black people. And prosecutors do this not just because they're racist, but because there's studies out there that show that black people are slightly more likely to acquit on an aggregate. And so prosecutors are so much more concerned with winning than, say, racial equality as as a virtue um, that a, a, on an aggregate level. You know, I'm not talking about any specific prosecutor here that, um, you know, that those issues come up a lot and courts sadly don't take them that seriously. Um, and so that's why people are going pretty hard against Tamala. But I've also been trying to get the conversation rolling on Amy Klobuchar, who's because she's had some, you know, issues of overzealous prosecution as well. 
Um, and so to me and a, a couple other people I've talked to, it seems like there is a, um, a bit, a bit of a, uh, uh, racial equity imbalance there in terms of everybody paying attention to Kamala on this moment, basically. And as you said, when Harris was running this tough on crime campaign, that rhetoric wasn't particularly uncommon in the Democratic Party. We've seen the same point made about Joe Biden's pretty horrific record, though I do believe the specifics of his leadership separate him from most Democrats, if not all of the time. But kind of a question this raises is, you know, 10 years ago, this serious interrogation into Harris's record, into Joe Biden's record, it wouldn't have looked the same. It wouldn't have had the same traction and seriousness within the Democratic Party. What happened between then and now that these are such serious issues? Yeah, I I think that there's a number of things. Uh, One, mass incarceration as a issue that people talk about and talk about it in that sense and talk about it in the sense of something being bad is a relatively new problem that I think in a lot of ways has been something that had been talked about um, amongst community activists and a lot of people, you know, uh, who are uh, politically engaged, who are people of color for a longer time. But then it kind of had this watershed moment. I, I and it potentially because of the internet, you know, like I think a lot of uh, Twitter action and uh, uh, spurs articles, spurs conversation about individual cases and people get concerned about that. But I think that for whatever reason, media, social media, um, especially articles talking about how we're the most incarcerated nation per capita on the planet, which which is true. Um, so that's when you account for the fact that we have 2.2 million people incarcerated. Our population is, you know, 320 million. You divide those and get like, um, a per capita rate. Um, we're literally number one. Um, and then say like a state like Oklahoma, Oklahoma is number one in the worst country on this issue in terms of incarcerating too many people. And I, it will, and then the other thing is that, you know, I think a lot of people, read and took to heart um, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, uh, which focused on the the fact that the drug war uh, uh, perpetrated, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, but spurred originally by Nixon, Reagan kind of took the mantle. That just, you know, started shoveling like nonviolent, non-dangerous people in droves into um, especially state prisons. State prisons hold uh, 90 plus percent of the uh, people who are incarcerated, federal prisons are much less, but, um, but yeah, so that is all true. And, uh, from a getting people to care about the issue standpoint is really important. Um, the thing that is hard, it, it, you know, and something that is kind of being reckoned with right now, and people have talked a little bit about this, like, especially professors regarding, say, Kamala Harris or Amy Klobuchar or Cory Booker on criminal justice reform is that, um, the, the the percentage in terms of who's incarcerated for drugs is actually substantially less than than people often uh, would assume, especially in Democrat and progressive um, circles. Um, a lot of people are incarcerated for um, crimes that are considered violent, even if they're crimes that say are they're considered violent on the legal level, but say wouldn't necessarily be taken the same way in a colloquial conversation. Like say, for example, um, 
in Louisiana, stealing somebody's purse is considered a violent crime. Um, but most people would see that as like, you know, like a mean and nasty thing to do slash a theft, like a serious theft, because you're doing it, you know, when you're walking, you know, alongside somebody, you just steal something and run away. But it's not like shooting somebody or stabbing somebody or raping somebody, you know. And uh, these categories have deliberately been muddled in legislatures, uh, including on the federal level, because, you know, no, no one wants to get their purse snatched, basically. And so it's, it's an easy way to add more stigma. But that's something that separates uh, Cory Booker from Kamala Harris because, or uh, Amy Klobuchar or Joe Biden or whoever, because right now the mainstream Democratic um, Party is talking about, you know, lessening sentences for certain nonviolent drug offenders, um, especially who have been incarcerated for a long time, like Trump's first step back. That was a bipartisan bill. Um, let some of those people go or will um, after, say, you know, most of them have been serving 10 years, decades, et cetera, at this point from, uh, you know, the crack cocaine era. Um, but Talking about the nuances with what we define as violence and the fact that, you know, people who have committed more serious acts can also rehabilitate. That's kind of something that only Cory Booker has talked about consistently. But um, it's it's complicated because a lot of people who like criminal justice reform and really care about it are who are not especially people who are not directly impacted or don't advertise them themselves as such uh, tend to be pretty left leaning. Um, and, you know, Cory Booker has a lot of other things that people are concerned about, such as um, charter schools or his Wall Street um, affection or uh, uh, big pharma, especially. Um, so it's, it's definitely an interesting time with this stuff. So you kind of beat me to my next question. When mainstream progressives talk about criminal justice reform, they almost exclusively talk about how we respond to nonviolent crime. We have a pretty common consensus now in progressive circles that people shouldn't go to prison for smoking weed. But there's little to no discussion of how to deal with violent convictions, which are what the majority of individuals incarcerated in state prisons are in there for. What does true reform mean? What does it mean to A, define what a violent crime is, and B, respond in a way that is truly just? Right. And it's, it's a, it's a heavy question with a lot of nuance, but, um, but I'm going to, you know, take a, take a crack at it. One of the things that I think that often doesn't get talked about because criminal justice reform in the mainstream has been propelled by a lot of, you know, like legal circles, like American lawyers and in law school, you're basically taught that, um, that the Supreme Court of the United States does not give one damn about uh, what happens in any other country abroad, you know, no looking at best practices of Europe or anything like that. It's like we left those other countries for a reason and we will not be influenced by what they do. Um, even if, say, a country like Sweden or Norway or the Netherlands has much less violent crime, like virtually no mass shootings, uh, you know, and that has a lot to do with gun control as well. Um, as well as the culture about guns, you know, like, um, in some countries, like in Norway, kids will learn to hunt, but like hunting is something you go to do at a lodge and you keep the gun in the lodge by law. Uh, and you just don't like bring it home and like, you can't go on a shooting spree if you lose your mind or something. 
But obviously, that's a very tricky issue to convince uh, anyone who's a Republican on, you know, in, in America. But yeah, so the Supreme Court's very skept- skeptical about other countries' laws. But um, I think that, at least for me, looking at other systems in other countries, or even in other states, comp- like some states compared to other states, uh, like say the least incarcerated, sta- incarcerated states compared to like your Louisiana's and your Oklahoma's, we kind of start to figure it out. And so like... Um, in most of Europe, uh, the average, well, so the maximum murder sentence will often look like by statute, something like 14 years in some countries, 20 years in other countries for a single homicide, at least, which rankles the American sensibility of the, the eye for an eye, life for a life kind of thing. And there's four theories of what punishment is supposed to do. Uh, retribution, deterrence, the idea of telling people like they're not supposed to do this in the community and telling the person who's being convicted and sentenced like you better not do that again because like we're going to teach you this lesson. Um, so like retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation and incapacitation. Uh, incapacitation being essentially warehousing somebody because they're, the idea they're so dangerous that if they come out, they're going to destroy the world basically, um, which is only really applicable to uh, to a very, very few offenders. Um, but our system is predominantly based on retribution. There's been arguments in, in various courts that that's, that's unfair. The courts laugh, basically. Um, and so it's really a matter of retweaking what percentage almost is the rehabilitation aspect. What percentage is like restoring communities or the offender to like make them a better person when they come out. Um, other countries are much more balanced or lean toward rehabilitation, especially, um, the countries, you know, like your, uh, Northern European countries that have barely any incarceration at all. Um, but it requires a certain level of commitment to not freak out about the particular heinous crimes that may happen because heinous crimes will always happen. Um, unless we become like cyborgs or programmed in a certain way or something, which isn't going to happen. Um, and so the question is, what do you do about it? And I, you know, I'm a proponent of like, look at the statistics, look at the data, like acknowledge that like those sorts of crimes are actually quite rare, you know, like your heinous child murders or whatever. And like, don't make policy, like when you're in the heat of the moment of this is like so horrifying. Now, granted, I'm not going to say I'm not going to like uh, say necessarily that um, that I I'm going to remain neutral personally right now on the question of what's the appropriate sentence for your average homicide. I mean, there's a lot of factors to consider. You have to consider um, how it's impacted the victim's family. You know, there's there's a person dead like there should be some punishment involved with that. But um, but we're not even really there yet. You know, like we we're still on, you know, the fact that due to the way that a prosecutor can charge, say, a homeless person breaking into a building for a place to sleep um, as a felony or a misdemeanor. They could call it, like, felony burglary if they want in, in most states. And, like, burglary is often considered violence. We're, we're, we really need to get past, like, those sorts of ideas. And legislatures are unlikely to even bridge that topic unless the prosecutors and probably also, like, victims group support at least, like, in on some level, you know, like, not, not talking about unanimity here or something. Um, and in some states, it, it's a bit different than other states, because, say, in California, 
the prosecutors always oppose everything, basically, except maybe one or two of them. Um, but the state legislature in California bans the felony murder rule, which essentially is um, if you are in a, say, conspiracy to rob a bank or like commit like a store robbery and one of your associates shoots somebody in the head without warning and you had no idea that that was going to happen because of the fact that you assume the risk that somebody could die in a dangerous crime, you're going to be convicted of first degree murder too and spend basically the rest of your life in prison in virtually every state. Um, and so California actually repealed that, even though all the prosecutors were, were horrified. And so a lot of people are going to be resentenced. Now, granted, these are people who have been serving a long time anyway, in most cases. Um, and are, you know, we have data that shows that people age out of crime with time, um, as they, they grow up, get more mature, like move past the adolescent development brain that continues up to around 26. And, um, yeah, so so some legislatures are willing to talk about it to some degree, but on the federal level, it's still really tricky because, you know, you're not just talking about your voting bases in uh, San Jose, California. You're also talking about your voter bases in Mississippi or something. And granted, those uh, Mississippi is never really likely to go blue ever. But, um, but what about swing states? You know, um, you really haven't seen um, a, a big rush to decarcerate uh, in states like North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Michigan yet. But uh, that said, things are rooting at the local level now, you know, where you have the Larry Krasner types in Philadelphia, Rachel Rollins in Boston, and in North Carolina, for example, the new Durham DA, uh, Satana Deberry, is extremely progressive. Um, and so the conversation could start to shift. And I think that the real, um, at least in, in my opinion, why I do the work I do is because I think that moving the ball will have to come from the district attorneys first, because legislators are afraid of scaring their constituents, whereas district attorneys can um, posit themselves as sort of like crime experts. Um, and we're not like a country, say, like Germany, where essentially their criminal laws are drafted by academic experts. And then the legislature just takes what they say seriously. We're kind of the opposite of that. So I know there's a lot of stuff in there, but that's that's kind of. Um, yeah. So prognosis, we're definitely not like quite there yet on the federal level. But conversations are happening in some states and especially at the county level about um how to address more than just like your misdemeanor marijuana possessions or, or whatnot. There is indeed a lot there. There are a few underlying questions I think we're hinting at. The first I'd like to ask is, how do we implement a system that is proactive, not reactive? How do we go about preventing crimes or acts that genuinely deserve a legal response instead of simply punishing them? How do we stop treating these things as inevitable? I think that the key is seeing that there's a public health angle to everything. Um, and people have already been studying um, violence reduction strategies in cities like Chicago with um, what's with people who are often called um, like relatable messengers, you know, people who are in uh, impoverished communities affected by like gun violence, uh, gang activity, and you know them being somebody who's lived there for a long time, maybe you used to be in that lifestyle and is not anymore, and uh, trying to do 
alternate dispute resolutions and discourage violence and things like that. That's really important. Um, and yeah, obviously things like education, increasing services, um, health services, uh, you know, drug treatment services, not and also not trying to use the arm of the law to force people to be 100% abstinent if they're not ready for that. That's the, the harm reduction angle of things. Um, there's there's a lot that we can do um, to prevent crime. And some of it admittedly does have obviously some some major political obstacles too. Um, for for example, uh, if we if say the NRA didn't exist and uh, the Second Amendment was worded differently, we could potentially be like a country in Europe or uh, you know Australia or New Zealand and essentially not have guns outside of ranges, outside of like maybe occasional law enforcement use stuff like that. Um, but we can't really do that in an easy way, obviously, in America. Um, there's been a lot of impact litigation where lawyers will try to um, use like a test case in a particular area with a particular plaintiff to sue the government to try to make a new policy. Um, that hasn't really been very successful on the Supreme Court level either. Um, so I think that there's going to have to be a lot of culture change on some issues and um it, and there there are things that we can do in the meantime, like say like gun buyback programs exist. Uh, Larry Krasner has been doing one in Philadelphia where if somebody has a firearm in their house that they're not using and they don't want like, uh, you know, to, you know, like have it just in case, like, you know, like um, and uh, they, they don't feel like they have a need for it and they feel like it adds uh, more um, danger to their lives and they can actually just like give it back to the DA, you know, and, um, uh, that's one thing that's really good. There's a lot of similar programs like that for opioids as well throughout the country, um, to try to fight the opioid epidemic, though that, that does help to some degree because, you know, a lot of people do get hooked on opioids at first as like teenagers stealing, say, um, their mom's Oxycontin or something from a surgery, you know, that they, they only needed, the mom only needed a couple of them and then she was fine and she left it around the house and then teenagers might experiment with it. So like, that's kind of where the opioid buyback thing is most ideal. Um, I don't think that necessarily, that you're going to be helping the population who, um, uh, you're not going to be reaching the people who are already like, chemically reliant on opioids uh, through that kind of thing most of the time. So, of course, there's limits. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a lot of things. It's an extremely complicated area. But the, I, I think that moving toward a more preventative model it actually creates a more safe society. And right now what we're doing is essentially, um, for, say, take uh, rape, for example. Prosecutors may prosecute like a, you know, a tiny percentage out of uh, all the allegations that exist um, of, of rape in any given city. Um, and then uh, a lot of, you know, quote unquote, tough on, tough on crime DAs, especially, you know, I see this in the South where they basically barely prosecute rape at all. But when they do, it's like life sentence. And so then they feel exonerated from their responsibility to keep the community safe from rapists because of sort of this uh, symbolic um just uh immolation of this particular defendant 
Right. Um, I, to the extent of, uh, and this is a very uh, granular detail, but uh, I have a friend in Memphis who's an advocate for um, reforming the way that police departments and prosecutors handle rape cases, aka like actually pursue them and and take uh, survivors seriously and don't uh, let rape kits get thrown out by accident, which is what happened to her. And um, the DA, you know, eventually uh, caught up with this guy like 10 years later after he raped you know, like 10 people. And my friend was like, what about my rape? And she was like, well, I mean, he's, he, he got life. So like, it doesn't matter that your case fell out of the statute of limitations, which used to be nine years. Um, and then the same prosecutor argued against her, the legislature to keep the statute of limitations, nine years, uh, rather than, you know, a lot of states are moving toward life. Um, but she's considered, you know, one of the toughest, uh, like DAs in America. Uh, Amy Weirich is her name. She's also notorious for prosecutorial misconduct. Um, but yeah, like trying to really shift the ball on law enforcement priorities from, you know, stop paying so much attention to all these meaningless, nonviolent, like, um, you know, drug crimes, especially, and, you know, really low level theft and stuff like that, um, and, and actually pay attention to violent crime more. Um, and make sure that you are addressing it in a, in a fashion that's not 100% focused on only the potential sentence, but also, you know, the fact that deterrence is actually better achieved from a, a virtual guarantee that you're going to get caught doing something than, say, a 10% chance that you're going to get caught. Um, and, uh, you know, if you get caught, you're going to get, like, life without parole or the death we just need we need better enforcement, really, rather than harsher punishment. And we've talked about a few DAs, past and present. There are district attorney elections this year. Where are they happening? Who are the candidates? What are the stakes? Yeah, sure. So um, the candidates are in... And forgive me for this being a little, uh, you know, unorganized. It's actually, this is just the way it is. But it's it's about half of Pennsylvania half of New York, roughly, half of Virginia, and then um, San Francisco, just San Francisco and California, and uh, Mississippi. That's it. Those are the, the prosecutor races. Um, this uh, uh, Daniel uh, Nichanian, who, um, who now is a fellow at the magazine The Appeal, he's a uh, political scientist uh, and a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago. His he goes by uh, Taniel. Like he has like a whole list of like every county that there's a prosecutor or sheriff race uh, this year, and he's presumably going to be doing this going forward. So that's a really helpful tool for people who are particularly interested in the, in mass incarceration. The stakes are quite high in the sense that there's a number of major metro areas that have several races. Um, that could obviously affect millions of people, but also potentially move the rhetorical ball forward in a, in a very significant way. Um, so, for example, in, in Queens, which I have done um, policy advising for Tiffany Caban, who is the, the most progressive candidate in that race, she, uh, she's this amazing 31-year-old public defender um, who is working with people from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign and it's just very exciting. Um, she's proposing a lot of things that if she were to win, um, would definitely move the ball 
in terms of what prosecutor candidates consider plausible in an electoral context. And obviously, they'd be watching to see how it translates into practice. But, you know, we're only on the political side right now. Um, and we and we do have pol- a policy team working through all this stuff to make sure it's uh, it's tenable and sustainable. Um, but for example, uh, stuff like prosecuting ICE. Uh, Tiffany Caban in Queens has promised to prosecute ICE agents who overstep their authority on uh, their mission to protect the public safety and welfare, which is ultimately what ICE is supposed to be. Like that's like their mission statement. Um, but currently, ICE agents throughout the country are stalking courthouses, just trying to ferret out. Anybody they can find that they suspect is an undocumented immigrant, you know, very much based on racial profiling, or they get, say, an ICE alert from the local police department or the prosecutor's office. Some prosecutors are saying they're not doing that anymore. Same with sheriffs. It's hard to know because of a lack of transparency in most offices. But uh, but Caban has promised to prosecute ICE agents for, say, things like them arresting the the survivor of domestic abuse, like including, say, rape, who are now afraid to come to court to testify against their abusers because they know they could get deported potentially if they do that. And so, like, that's that's a really big deal. And uh, uh, Attorney General candidate Zephyr Teachout in New York pr- proposed a somewhat similar thing, but this is kind of Building on that in our policy memos we act, that are coming out in the next couple of weeks, we have a concrete, um, you know, explanation with legal citations of how we plan for this to work. And so um, I, I don't know if, if Zephyr Teachout's campaign did, did that to that degree, um, but that's just one example. There's also stuff about uh, reinvesting what's called civil forfeiture money back into communities. And that's where the police can, just based on an accusation of criminal activity, essentially steal people's stuff um, and and um, divert it back to law enforcement. You know, like they'll liquidate property, use the cash, et cetera, essentially use that to pay for more cops and prosecutors. Tiffany Caban is planning on having a, a community um, like oversight type of board, um, but even stronger than most of those sorts of boards to help decide where that money should best be put back into the community rather than just sending it back to the DA coffers, which is extremely common. I mean, in uh, in Manhattan, I, I uh, sometimes say this on Twitter, uh, District Attorney Cy Vance could probably save every single poor person in New York City from poverty if he has decided to divest the billion plus dollars of civil asset forfeiture money he has from prosecuting big banks. Um, but instead, you know, 150 billion of that goes to his, uh, international cybercrime summit in like Belgium or something, you know? Um, and, and kind of, you know, this, it's good that he's doing this, but it's sad that the stopgap is even necessary. He, he's essentially funding like every, like most urban DA's offices to work to address rape cases that have, uh, have rape kits associated with them. And those kits have never been tested. He's giving like a million dollar grants to like various DAs across the country for that. But that's something that like should just be paid for by the government, you know? And like, you know, that's something that, uh, that we shouldn't have to rely on like uh, that kind of thing. Basically it should just be better funded in the first place. But often this money is not going toward like such a um, important and uh, honorable cause, you know, it's going toward more, uh, petty drug enforcement and and things like that. 
there's a lot of really progressive stuff we're talking about in, in Queens. And it's going to be very interesting because a lot of the candidates of the race are, uh, are positing, positing themselves as criminal justice reformers to various degrees. So there's going to be a lot of robust debates and discussion and hopefully a lot of news coverage about it because um, because these these issues are important to talk about and, and have people actually, you know, exposed to these kinds of uh, uh, debates on how the criminal justice system should look. The other big ones are San Francisco. Pittsburgh has one right that's going to be decided in May by a Democratic primary. Um, but th- those are basically the biggest ones. There's a lot of more suburban type counties. And also there's some cities and areas that do have races that could be competitive, but for whatever reason are just not. So in the Bronx, for instance, um, the incumbent district attorney, Darcel Clark, has been pr- criticized a lot for um, uh, the Cali Browder case, for example. Like, that was her office's case, and um, and she was somewhat involved with it. Uh, she was a judge at the time, but then, like, came to the office kind of while it was going on. Um, but she didn't do anything about it, really. And she uh, recently had an exoneration come out of her office where she said that... Um, you know, it was like a murder case from like 20 years ago. And there there was some like real mishandling of evidence issues. And she was like, eh, that's just kind of how the NYPD used to do things. Like, I'm not going to judge it. But like somebody just spent 20 years on like something they didn't even do. And like, I'm kind of surprised there isn't a challenger for her. And there's a lot of other counties that that are kind of struggling to find um, people to run because it's it's not like... It's not a walk in the park kind of job. It's it's a very hard job. If anything goes wrong and like say you recommended like a um a generous less punitive sentence for somebody and then they go out and do something really bad, which actually doesn't happen that often, but like when it does, the DA will feel responsible. You know, the same way that a psychiatrist might personally on like a personal like uh level that they keep hidden from the public feel guilty if something like that happens with one of their patients or something. So they're really careful a lot of the time. And like if there's um, and, you know, like they get flack from both the uh, the police and the community, depending on the issue. And it's it's really complicated. It's it's it used to be a given that people just like keep the seeds before the media used to focus on this stuff. But now they're like getting a lot more competitive, at least in years that are not as off year as 2019. Um so, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's not something I'd recommend to somebody just wanting like a uh, a plushy job where you, you know, just like make a lot of money and no one hates you and, you know, what have you, you know. And it's not common, but we have had a few elected officials on here. Massachusetts Representative Nika Eligardo, Harris County Criminal Court Judge Franklin Bynum, New York State Senator Julia Salazar, who support prison abolition. I don't believe we've had any elected guests who support police abolition, but we have had a few who said they could imagine a future without police in their current form. So we're seeing abolition politics for the first time in decades, maybe half a century, come back into the mainstream political discourse. What does that mean and how do you imagine that developing going into the future? Yeah, it's a it's a really tough question because I, I think that... Um... I, I've definitely had my own, uh, you know, if I were running for office and there was a prison abolitionist uh, magazine or something and they were trying to, like, talk about different candidates and, you know, how much they support 
uh, their platform or something like I, I've had a bit of a mixed record. Like I do think that we could probably reduce the prison population by like 60 to 90%. Um, like just like let them go and crime wouldn't go up, but, or maybe it would just go up like slightly for a while, but then like go back to normal, especially if we had like adequate, like funding for social services and things of that nature and stopped uh, criminalizing like petty offenses and, throwing people back in the system for uh, minor probation and parole violations and things like that. But I do think that there is some some truth that there are some people who have committed heinous crimes, multiple have perhaps been convicted in multiple various episodes rather than, say, committing a lot of crimes and being convicted of all of them at once. Like somebody who has, like, been to prison, got out, did the thing again, got out. Like, say, like a serial rapist who never stops or... Or say, for example, um, I was really struck when I was doing a death penalty report at uh, Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project in my old job. And there was a case that I came across where um, it was in Texas and the man had killed somebody uh, and then served time and then killed somebody again when he got out, which is actually extremely rare statistically. Um, but then, like, um, he was spared the death penalty the first time. The second time, he had killed a guard you know, who, like, came to feed him or something. The defense lawyer obviously was trying to spare him from from the death penalty and was like, don't talk, don't talk. But the guy decided to say, like, whatever, screw you, lawyer, and, like, got up and said, like, if anyone ever goes near me ever again, I will murder them too. Like, all I care about is, like, murdering people. And, like, yeah, like, you know, he's probably severely, I mean, he he was severely mentally ill, and that could very well be what's going on there. Um, and I don't believe in, you know, preventative detention, really. But, um, but like, you also have to find a way to um, sustainably curb hyperviolent conduct, basically. And I understand where, like, a lot of abolitionists are coming from who have gotten, you know, like, who have come to those politics by seeing people who are serving, like, life without parole for, um, for, like, say, a homicide when they were 15 or something, because this used to be legal, um, and it was overused all the time in Philadelphia, and say, like, you know, 15-year-old uh, was hanging out with some friends, and one of them uh, killed somebody while trying to rob somebody, and then they all go to prison for life without parole. There's no chance at redemption, and they were kids, and the person didn't even really do it, you know? Like, maybe they had no idea what was going to happen. Um, and and so, like, yeah, like, those those injustices are extremely real, and I think that in the in the... In the more distant future, I could see potentially moving to a system where either prisons are so unprison-like where we don't even call them prisons, um, but some people are still detained um, for, for violent crime or um, something like that. I think that the main difference between me and the prison abolitionists, prison abolitionists tend to be time frame related in the fact that, like, I do think that, like... And they could prove me wrong, and I hope they prove me wrong, you know. But um, we're we're kind of still like in this space where even like things still seem incremental, but we're jumping in like exponential leaps and bounds. Kind of like the comparison between, say, uh, the first Nintendo console ever made and the PS Five that's about to come out, or something like like we've had like that kind of almost technological style exponential increase in progress. 
And I, I do have some reticence that um, in certain areas, depending on how mainstream the abolitionist argument comes, I feel like there might be a wave, or at, at the very least first, and maybe for a long time, where the TAs who are willing to cooperate to a, to a point, just like potentially just move the other direction, you know, that the pendulum just swings back toward like, like, oh, you know, like I was pro bail reform and like people shouldn't be incarcerated for not being able to pay money, um, which is which is obvious, you know, bail bondsman companies are a scourge upon the earth. And a lot of DAs do agree with that in more progressive areas, especially if they've been elected as reformers. But if you say, for instance, that like if somebody who like their pretrial detention should never exist, even for like a Dylan Roof or something or a. I mean, like, that's probably, you know, like one of the best examples. I mean, Harvey Weinstein was rich enough to like pay his way out of uh, pretrial detention, which is is also wrong. But uh, yeah, like. Freeing Dylan Roof right after he killed the, uh, you know, nine black people worshiping in a church. Probably a bad idea, you know? And so that's, and I mean, I guess like I should, before I get some like criticism for this, like I, I have, I have friends and allies that I work with in this space who do identify, identify as prison abolitionists um, and do, and there's definitely like a lot who press for incrementalist reforms while keeping in mind the the ultimate goal. And I think that that's extremely admirable uh, and important, and I would never take away from that. Um, but it's it's complicated, is basically um, the very lawyerly response that, that, <laughs> that I can give, I guess. And what do you think our listeners can do to get involved and take action on criminal justice reform in this legislative session and going into 2020? Yeah, for sure. Well, the action is going to uh, to be much more on the state level than on the federal level, most likely, uh, considering that, you know, we still have President Trump unless he gets impeached. I would be, is people, I actually worked uh, like with some, uh, some Democrat lean groups on the First Step Act. And, I, you know, there's, there's some criticism from abolitionists about uh, some of the uh, risk assessment models, and those are duly noted, and I, I get that for uh, risk assessment models attached to some like earlier release to halfway houses on certain nonviolent crimes. Like it's very incremental anyway, but that's just kind of how the federal system has been for so long. And I think that the, the action is moving much faster on the state level. Um, there are a lot of reforms that are happening in legislators, uh, legislatures throughout the country. Like Wyoming is thinking about getting rid of the death penalty. Um, Colorado is likely going to be as well. Um, and I think maybe New Hampshire. There's going to be sentencing reforms of various types all over. I know that there's uh, in New York right now a big push to get rid of um, most what they call crimeless revocations of parole and probation, where people say are on uh, probation or parole for a, like any kind of offense, you know, generally like, like it could be a misdemeanor, like often it's going to be a felony if it's a longer term of, of one of those. But the thing is the, the standard probation conditions that you get are like, uh, even if you're over 21, like don't take a sip of alcohol, <laughs> don't smoke a joint. And if you do, you're not going to necessarily go back to serve your whole time, but that's in the discretion of the judge. So the judge basically decides, like, hey, am I going to, like, send you back to prison for 10 years from those armed robberies? Because you had, like, 
a glass of wine with your family or something. It's grotesque. But there's been like so little conversation of the issue, probably because it's so nuanced. Um, until now, like especially the last couple of years with some, a lot of scholars who used to work in law enforcement talking about these issues. And now in New York, you have a lot of the district attorneys supporting um, uh, getting rid of most crimeless revocations like Cy Vance in Manhattan, Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, the Albany DA, and like several others um, who have like even mixed records on reform are like, yes. And so, like, that is definitely something that I think that people can call their legislators and ask about. I think the other thing is everyone has a district attorney, you know, and um, and there is more of a move to make those offices more populist and less opaque and non-transparent. And so, for example, um, Real Justice Pack run by uh, Sean King uh, he, it, Real Justice Pack has like all these different community volunteer groups. So does like Color of Change that works in the space. Um, and they will, uh, get groups together and the groups will like try, like work to meet with, uh, somebody from the DA's office and be like, here, like, is our like set of, you know, political demands or we're going to try to get a challenger for you in your next race or something. And so like that, that kind of thing can create, um, change to um, right where you live. Um, and it's, you know, more likely potentially to have an effect than, than calling your legislator. But it does it does take a lot of work. And there is uh, an element of it's kind of scary, right? I mean, like, it's, uh, it's like calling up the FBI as, you know, just a grassroots person being like, hey, what's up? I don't like the way you do drug raids or something. It's a little less scary than that. The, I think that's how a lot of people envision it. But it's it's definitely something that's becoming more common. So Lots of stuff to look out for in the news and uh, state legislatures in terms of reform proposals and bills. Uh, one can call their legislator and like b- try to you know bring groups of their friends and uh, fellow activists to the Capitol to testify in favor of bills. Um, that's that's a big thing to do as well. So so there's a lot of different things and there's always action moving in the space. And it's not always as progressive as one might like, but. Um, but I think that generally speaking, you know, there's a lot because the criminal justice system is so bad, there's a lot to fix. And so often you'll see like at least a couple of bills talking about reforming something every year or every session um, on the things that are a bit more uh, like culturally taboo, like, say, safe injection sites or decriminalizing sex work or or legalizing sex work. Um, like those sorts of things probably are better to talk to your local DA and make a, a pitch that's convincing to them first, because then they can use their weight if, if you um, are convincing to them and they're so inclined in the legislature, which has a tremendous impact um, and is going to be a growing uh, strategy in years to come. So. And where can folks find you and Foglight Strategies online? Yeah, so um, online, the best way to find me is my Twitter handle, RoryFleming8A, R-O-R-Y-F-L-E-M-I-N-G-8A. And uh, you can also go to my uh, Foglight Strategies website, foglightstrategies.org. Uh, and, you know, we've had a lot of great clients that I'm very proud of. And I'm super happy to talk to, honestly, anyone who reaches out with a problem about their elected DA or, you know, something that they want to get like a social media blast or potentially reporter attention on, or if it's just like, Hey, my DA is awesome. Like 
Like, um, I think that he deserves to be reelected, uh, or he or she. Like, um, they they are often men, though, unfortunately. Yeah, like I'm totally a hundred percent down to talk to whoever's interested in this stuff. I'm always very active online. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, if you want to hear more great interviews with folks like Rory, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on social media, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.